0: thanks for listening to the podcast if you've enjoyed this episode we'd like to ask you to do two simple things first if you could leave us a review on your chosen podcast player and second if you could share or send this link to another grassroots coach those two things will help us spread the word about the podcast and grow our community Welcome to the Athletic Evolution podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Kelvin Giles. Kelvin is a legend in strength and conditioning. A former UK national and Olympic track and field coach, he spent 30 years in Australia's high-performance sport environment across organisations including the Australian Institute of Sport, Queensland Academy of Sport, Canberra Raiders, and Brisbane Broncos. He also led the Australian Rugby Union Elite Player Development Programme. Kelvin has coached 14 Olympic and World Champion athletes over a 40-year career in coaching. He's the CEO of Movement Dynamics UK Limited and consults for a range of national governing bodies and federations. He also authored the Physical Competency Assessment Resources. When it comes to coaching, Kelvin Giles has been there, done it and got the t-shirt. So Kelvin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for your time today. Uh, It's my pleasure. It's good to see you again. And you. So for those who haven't come across you before, can you give us a bit of a background background how did you get involved in sport many means ago and how has that evolved into the, the illustrious career that you've had? Oh, illustrious. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I was just a, a,
1: a normal bloke in, kid in, in Birmingham uh, wanting to play soccer. That, that was all I wanted to do. Uh, it ruined my uh, education in high school because all that's all I wanted to do, nothing else. Um, so I didn't have uh, a, a brilliant time with my O level and A levels, but managed to screep through and, and finished up going to a, a PE college, Madeley College in Staffordshire, uh, uh, to be a PE teacher. And, and it, it didn't really take too long uh, for this strange thing to happen. Um, one of our lecturers was uh, Ian Ward, who had been a national coach for Great Britain Athletics and had competed. And he walked into the lecture theatre that day, well, the lecture room uh, that day, and on his blazer was the Great Britain Union Jack with athletics on it. And I, uh, from that minute, I became obsessed with wanting to be a Great Britain national coach in track and field athletics. And I was, so I was just bare, just 18 years of age at the time. It also, by the courses that we ran at Madeleine and the athletics one, put us in contact with Wilf Pache, who used to come down and, and help us through our level ones and level twos in our VAAB coaching awards. And so I ran, as well as having the influence of Ian Ward, who taught us how to teach track and field athletics, I then came across Wilf Page, the absolute master of, of pedagogy, of how to teach. Um, so I was surrounded by these lecturers uh, at the at the college that introduced me to how to teach, and I was absolutely hooked and obsessed with track and field athletes and wanted to become a track and field coach. And I then met some as I got older throughout those uh, college years. I met other national coaches: Bruce Longdon, Wolf Pace, uh, Carl Johnson, uh, Malcolm Arnold, uh, Frank Dick. And I said, look, I'd like to be, I want, to, I want one of these jobs. What have I got to do? And they told me, A, to keep well clear of it, but B, uh, these are the things you've got to do. So I just then embarked upon uh, the first thing they said was you better coach. Just start coaching, not just teaching in the schools, but start coaching. So I joined Birchfield Harriers, and I just volunteered as a coach seven days a week across every single event I could get my hands on. And I must have been terrible when I first started. <laughs> just imagine. But... I was basically mentored by people like Wilf and Carl Johnson, and the, but the guys I used to meet up with and try and, and they were kind enough to give me some time. And so it started there. And, and within, I think, within a decade, uh, I was lucky enough um, and daft enough to become a Great Britain national coach in athletics and, and took my first faltering steps along that pathway as a kid. You know, I was in my early 30s and, and really shouldn't have got the job that early. But Frank Dick was, was good enough to appoint me to the position as national coach for the Midlands with, with national uh, responsibilities as well. And next thing, Moscow Olympics came along. So that was a, a rapid uh, learning of how to handle that super elite level. And, and so my, my career started there. And it, and it just started with coaching seven days a week. That's where it all started from. The, 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 in late, later years now, it seems that strength and conditioning seems to have been a title that's been dropped on me. But I'm not. I'm just a track and field coach. And that's where all of this, my own observations and my own experiences and where I now sit in terms of what do I believe in and how should things have been done, have all grown from being a
0: PE teacher. And obviously, you, you kind of started in track and field, but as you say, as that the industry has kind of grown, I guess, coaching-wise, you've then ended up in other, I guess, consultancy roles and other bits and bobs as well over the years?
1: Yeah, I, I then, um, and people always ask me, "Well, oh, tell us the biggest mistakes of your life. Somewhere you might be going to ask me that later, or I'll tell you now. That My biggest mistake I ever made was to let my ego get the better of me and say yes to a job offer here in Australia. As a 32, 34-year-old, uh, I should have stayed in Great Britain and learnt my trade for the next 20 years as a as a national coach for my country. But for some reason, the Australians—they—they uh, they just experienced 1976, where they had a disastrous Olympic Games, and um, it, it was it was worked out then by the government that they could no longer just hope that uh, people would win medals for the country they had to do something about it and developed their first ever uh, high performance uh, project which was the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra and I was asked if I wanted to be the first track and field coach there and I made the dumb decision of saying yes thinking I was good enough and I just wasn't I just wasn't good enough to do that I mean I was fortunate for the next four or five years to create several Australian record holders and get to uh, 84 Olympic Games and and, uh, 88 Seoul and and, and onwards and that. But the next decade that I was in, the first decade I was in Australia was fraught with my limitations in experience. Um, But it it allowed me then at at some stage just in the mid-80s, I then got introduced to rugby league uh, across here. Uh, and that made me start thinking more laterally about how performance and I try to help some rugby league players here. It took me closer to then working in a part-time capacity uh, with the Canberra Raiders as a fitness coach along like, alongside Sean McRae, who came across to the UK and did wonderful stuff with teams like St Helens and Hull and that kind of thing. So we worked together at the Raiders and the Raiders then became national championships for uh, for for some for one reason or another. Um, And then uh, I was headhunted by the Brisbane Broncos to move to Brisbane to take on a role that we described there as a performance director to try and take this club from being one with potential to one that would now develop a high-performance strategy across strength and conditioning or fitness, sports medicine, sports science, uh, and try and amalgamate all the, those stresses that, that come and from those things, and see if we could produce that into a successful uh, outcome. Uh, and and we were lucky. It took a couple of years to get it going, and then uh, Brisbane were the were champions for '92 and '93, and have become champions just for so, so long. Uh, it helped them through that phase that they went through. Um, and then, so I, that, that's where I sort of got this, this sort of title of to do with strength and conditioning. But all I was doing was just expanding my knowledge of track and field athletics, how to plan, how to periodize things, how to, how to, how people learn and all that, and just doing it in a different environment. Um, came back to the UK uh, after a while and did four years with the London Broncos, another, another growing fledgling operation that wanted to get better and work there for four years came back from that and and became the head of strength and conditioning uh or or whatever physical performance whatever you want to call it the queensland academy of sport uh and that was an and then all the time meeting tremendous people and learning from all these people all the time and now the qas was very powerful it wasn't 65% 65 percent of all the medals in uh, in in uh, Sydney and Athens and um, Beijing. Very powerful operation with with just brilliant people in there. And I I was lucky enough to be able to uh, put together a team of strength and conditioning coaches that that luckily, and some of these names now are, are just worldwide best, the best of the best. The Dean Bentons, the Lachlan Penfolds, the Suki Hobsons, the Anthony Georges, the Chris Caviglios, the Scotty Dickinsons. The, these, the, uh, the, the, these are Johnny Pryor and, and all that, that crew. These are the guys now that are in the leading positions and greatest influences around the world. And I was lucky to have him working with me, <laughs> it, was, it was just incredible. <laughs> And I learn from these guys every day, even now. I can get on the phone and, and if I've got a problem trying to work something out, I have this huge network of people that I respect extraordinarily. And look, that, there's a snapshot of, of how I've journeyed along. Look, it got to 2007 when the, uh, London won the Olympic bid. And I started getting invitations to go across to the UK back home and, um, and chat with Athlete coach units or organisations, national governing bodies, uh, high performance squads, professional soccer teams and rugby teams and rugby league teams, and in the end I thought it's time to go home. Why not? I've got all I I could. I could probably so I went back and I lived at my sister's house in Wade, and from there I just started going out and trying to help people. They'd ask me if I could have I've got any thoughts or ideas, and in my daft way I would. I would try and help them along and question to help them question their assumptions and just try and pass on all the mistakes that i'd made and learned from, hopefully that they wouldn't have to do the same mistakes. so it was a bit of a mentoring role for individuals or lots of operational reviews for organizations to see if we could make it better for them. so I did that whole i did the next eight years through to, uh, to uh, London and then on to Rio. Uh, and then finally came back to Brisbane in 2016 as I get older and older and older and I've come straight back here and I've gone back to being a volunteer coach again I'm coaching 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds now uh, and they're driving me crazy so
0: So, there you go. In terms of obviously you've had a massive um, journey around the world in different sports and different athletes and coaches what has your motivation for coaching changed as you've gone through? Has it come full circle? What would you kind of point to as being the thing that really gets you going when it comes to coaching?
1: I don't know. It was, uh, I'm dealing with a 12-year-old now that, that, who swims and sprints. And so to see her get better uh, is, is one driving force. But it's also tempered by the fact I'd like her still to be involved a decade from now. So what I've got to do is I can't chase the results, short-term, quick-fix, fast-tracking results, and then forget that she's about to go through one of the greatest times when we lose athletes to sport. Entering high school, that's when we lose 40% of them. They don't come back again. Well, we, you can't afford to do that, and so I get driven also by by trying to prepare them for adulthood, by trying to uh, make them robust enough to survive the reality of life. And if I can do that, and it sounds a bit it sounds a bit daft saying all that, but that's what elite athletes are—the <laughs> people who are who can take on reality and survive it. It can take on adversity and survive it, can enter their adult world with the least number of limitations and then can take full advantage of it. So those are the the encompassing drivers for me. Uh, And look, don't forget to add on, it's really great to win stuff. When, when Brisbane, when Canberra Raiders uh, came from behind in, the, in that grand final in 1989 and beat the favourites, I'll tell you what, that's brilliant. Yeah, that never leaves me. The same as the Broncos winning their two back-to-back championships and then onwards from that. And to watch athletes who weren't anything special, they're not genetic freaks, work their backsides off and come from being an ordinary runner in the local community, making an Olympic semi-final or building somebody else that then goes on to become a silver medalist at the World Championships. The achievement of the repeatable excellence, never forget that that's a driving force as well as those more uh, warm and fuzzy parts as well.
0: So if you were trying to describe your philosophy or your a way your approach to coaching, how would you sum it up over these years? Uh,
1: I, th- I think I think to try and talk about a philosophy is just an old man rambling on maybe if i can if I can remember many of them i have try to jot a few of them down but Rather than try and talk philosophically, if I just give you some of the things that are in my toolbox that I try and keep coming back to all the time, and if you add them all up, it might give you the picture. For example, the first thing I've got to do is to choose athlete-appropriate activities before sports-appropriate activities. I've got to deal with the individual first, and then I can always adapt that person towards the, the... the specific activities demanded by the sport they've chosen. But I better get the person right first. So it's athlete appropriate before sport specific is is something I've learned. If I've tried to do it the other way around, it's never worked. It's also if they are young enough to do this, to create this journey inside their own unique rhythm of maturation. I'm talking about from 10 years onwards through to 20, Please stop thinking that they are adults at 18, 19, and 20. Stop. Get them into their early to uh, mid-20s, and then you've got the adult, but not before that. So during that journey up until they become adults, you've got to be adaptable and flexible because their maturation journey will throw that many problems at you. You better be adaptable. So it's got to be within their unique journey and the rhythm of that journey. Not what somebody else has done or what athlete X down the road is doing or what this coach is doing with somebody else. No, it's got to be done with the athlete. You've got to fit the program to the athlete. But too often, we set out this grandiose program and then try and squeeze the athlete into it. The opposite to fitting the program to the athlete fails. So, and I guess this is where I come up with these daft lines like, write your programs in pencil. Because I'm telling you, what you wrote down for today's training session, the chances of you getting through it, or the chances of the athlete getting through it, just because you wrote it down, is very slim. You can only react to how the athlete adapts to what the environment you've created, not what you've written down. Uh, what's another? The session's only finished when they've recovered from it. Not because it's now Tuesday. It's when they've recovered from it. So you've got to say, well, okay, we achieved this in yesterday's training session or the last training session. Have they recovered from it? Because if you, training is cumulative, but so is fatigue. And if you start asking them to do things before they're ready to do it, you'll start a downward spiral. And I've made lots of mistakes that way. And I, I refuse to do it anymore. And, um, They've got to earn the right to progress. Now, that means that we can talk a lot about what is progression, but we always like to think they're going to get better tomorrow and then better next week and then better next month and then better next year and better next decade, I know. But you can't move them along this journey until they've consolidated at the current position. They are really, really good. There are no limitations at this point in time. Now we can try and move them forward. And if you describe that in this way, it might be get them to do something they can do then something else they can do, then something else they can do and then try something they can't do and then take them back to what they can do. So you keep flirting with the progression ceiling and then come back from it. Flirt with the progression ceiling, then come back from it. Not just blindly write down one of those, in all respect, you know you know the periodization sheets that we're supposed to fill in that Judah Bomper put out, you know, it's, it's, it's a work of art. It's got 10,000 blocks of different colours in it and whatever. Don't, don't, forget that. Don't bother. Just work out today's programme and see how you go. And then write tomorrow's based on what happens today. That's an easier way of doing it and it's a smarter way of doing it. And... Um, and in all this, while you try and progress them, please remember that volume is not a biomotor ability. <laughs> it isn't. Please stop to, keeping on doing too much, thinking that more is better. It's the quality of what they do. I mean, I still have people, I went out doing some course with um, with some uh, middle distance uh, coaches the other day, and, and they were just talking about increasing mileage, increasing mileage, and we tried to say, it's the quality of each mile, not how many miles you do. And they've got the worst running mechanics that I've ever seen, yet they're doing more and more miles. And I'm thinking, no, let's, let's get quality as the key rather than the quantity. Um, give them the physical competence to do the, ta- the technical stuff. And then give them the technical competence to do the tactical stuff, but do it in that order. Believe me, there is not a sport-specific posture or action that will not demand that they are robust enough to hold on to it. If you're, if you're going to throw the javelin, one of the most explosive, destructive type of activities you can do if you do it more than once, you better be strong and stable and flexible from toenails to fingernails before you even start doing loads of them. Certainly do it at fun level but you've got to build up a robustness. So if you want to set up a, a basic conditioning model for them, on top of that, then build a technical model and keep the physical model one step ahead of the technical model. Because the minute you let the technical model get, you start putting too much power, too much speed, too much endurance onto it. Look, in other words, stop loading a poor movement. Please stop loading a poor movement because you want to get along, because the fixture list is determining how fast you've got to do this. So um, get, get them to be great movers first, nothing to do with sport. Then when you want to move relative to the sport, then you've got this whole background. I said to the, I was speaking to some um, javelin coaches across Australia nation just a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying, look, it might sound daft, but... I think we've got to learn to to build a movement vocabulary that's got nothing to do with any sport. And from that, then we'll develop a throwing vocabulary. And then from that throwing vocabulary, then we can choose the event specific. Then we'll do the javelin vocabulary. And if if we follow that pattern and not miss any of these stages and not fast track it or quick fix it, you can imagine how robust... And how deep and wide their their learning and their ability to control their bodies and change t- t- their techniques they're going to be. If all you do is put a javelin in their hands and start throwing it till their arm aches, you lost the battle. So, it's you go from general to related to specific. That to me is the kind of journey that I always try and go on. Now, the minute I the minute I let the fixture list determine, which makes me race through. Uh, Forget the general, uh, oh, let's, don't, don't bother with the, the, the related, get to the specific, why? Because of the competition coming up. Then we've, we do not have robust technical models that can survive. Look, look, remember, don't ever forget that the, going into the arena in the Olympic Games, the World Championships, is, it's a frightening place. It's a dangerous place to be emotionally and physically. You've got to prepare them so they are robust, technically, tactically, physical, behaviorally, and mentally. That's what we've got to do. And these kind of longer, more patient approaches are going to help a great deal. I can hear myself rambling now. Sorry.
0: <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. It's all, yeah, I, I think it's fantastic it's stuff. Your own,
1: it's your own fault, Rob. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we've obviously started to delve into long-term athlete development, a long-term physical development. And I know one of the things you're passionate about is the need for long term coach development, so why have you kind of come to this stance and what do you think for you what does long term coach development mean? What does that look like
1: um, We'll just talk about it doesn't matter what country we talk about basically, but let's talk about the Australian model here we you know there's, there's 25, 000, 25 million people live here well there's 9 year olds and in, they are going to form the 2036 or four or three Olympic Games. They're already nine years of age. Now, 25% of them are overweight and obese, and another 25% don't do any physical activity. So they've only got about 60,000 to choose from. They're going to stay around all the way through their teenage years to adulthood. That's all, to every sport. That's all they've got. Can you afford to lose any of them by not giving some thought to what is the journey they're on? And so the the national governing bodies and the decision makers, the, 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 the sports bureaucrats, what they've done is to keep on regurgitating and rewriting these athlete pathways. There is some wordsmith somewhere in some organization whose sole job is every year to keep rewriting the athlete pathway. And they've done that now for the last 30 years. I've started seeing athlete pathways written down 30 years ago. Yet, when it goes wrong, they say, well, we better rewrite the pathway. And so you get a different look at the pathway. And they, they refer back to uh, science on long-term athlete development. they refer back to uh, all these things to do with, with long-term athlete development. And none of them have ever realized that you can write as many athlete pathways as you like. But unless you develop the coaches to teach along this journey, you're, you're going to keep rewriting these pathways. You can always tell. Uh, this year, I've seen three new athlete pathways rewritten across three different sports. Just, we're, we're only halfway, we're not even halfway through the year yet. So, but none of them have rewritten the coach development model that goes with it. And it, when you look at the reason why the participation is dropping and you, why, if you just look at the transition from junior to senior that we've got, and it's ca- catastrophically bad, you're losing 30% of our participants from the age of 12 onwards every year. And, and you ask why they're arriving at that threshold between junior and senior uh, with limitations in their technique, limitations physically, limitations behaviorally, li- limitations mentally. Well, the only people that can change that are the coaches or even the coaches and the teachers, if physical education could ever change itself. So we could have this whole wonderful baseline of teachers and coaches if they had been developed as well as the athlete pathways have been developed. The problem is that coaches spend their 250 quid, $250 for a weekend to become a level one track and field coach and the national governing body, because it's an income stream, uh, they rub their hands in glee, they tick a box, we've got another coach and that's the last they do about the coach. I don't care about that coach anymore. Coach mentoring is something which has been spoken about for 50 years and nobody has ever turned it from theory into practice. I, I, was, I chose my mentors. I went to people and I turn around now to coaches and say, please don't wait for your national governing body to come and mentor you to better practice. They're not going to do it. They've taken your money and they don't care anymore. They will not pay another jot of attention to you at all. They'll leave you to get on with it. If you did that to your cardiac surgeons or your plumbers or electricians, and you just left them on their own with no opportunity to make them better, or anybody at all as a professional, why do we leave our teachers and our coaches just staring at the four walls and waiting for help? So we mentioned coach mentorship. I believe that coaching should start, coach education should start the minute somebody gets their certificate. Not stop when they get their certificate, but start. So national government, and where do we want the support? We want the support inside the session. Not going to a classroom and sitting down in front of of another PowerPoint presentation, but to be in a coaching session with 15, 12-year-olds that you're trying to teach to jump and have a master coach next to you, supporting you, guiding you, stepping in and making a little change, whispering in your ear, debriefing afterwards, debriefing halfway through, giving you feedback, just like I was given feedback when I was trying to train as a teacher. My lecturers would come and watch me teach, and then talk to me about it, and critical assessment, tell me where I can improve on it. Now this coach mentorship, the unfortunate thing is, it's gonna cost money because you've got to pay these mentors to be on side and inside a training session with these coaches. But nobody's ever tried it yet. All you've got to do is, is start reducing your bureaucracy and all the money it uses up and use some of that money at the sharp end. You asked me in, in the, some of the questions of, of what are the things that I've thought have gone wrong and one of them is this, that. We've given over the running of sport and the running of physical education to career bureaucrats. Yet it should be run. Coaching, sports development in terms of coaching should be run by coaches. Teachers should run what's happening in physical education, not career bureaucrats. It's one of the greatest tragedies that's happened in sport, that we've allowed the sporting bureaucracy to be an end in itself. And it consumes our human, our physical, our financial resources until there's nothing left to help that mum and dad coach that tomorrow night's going to have 30 12-year-olds down at a track and field meet and they've been on their own and nobody's helped them at all. I I try and do that myself at the moment. You know, if I can pop down to the local area and say, look, I can show you some things in the warm-up. Can I take the warm-up with these nine-year-olds for you? Uh, and then whisper in there and say, look at the, look at the little lad over there. You lost him. He's, he's doing it wrong. What are you going to go and say to them? How are you going to feed back to this person? Go and go and draw that person and just non-stop having somebody there that the sigh of relief that these, these volunteer coaches give you when you turn up and just help them because they are lost they, the last time they got anybody helping was four years ago when they did their course and got their level one. Now I know you can turn around and say, but it's up to them to go and get reeducated. But the education is in a classroom. We need the education inside the training session. Will somebody right in there to keep, to keep supporting and mentoring somebody towards a better practice this minute, not wait until next week. So for all the, uh, All the big things that that have come out of all this is that coach mentoring, whoever gets this right, the UK got close. One of the first guys I coached was Tony Hadley. He's been one of the best coaches in in England athletics for a long, long time. He's now working out of Loughborough, helping prepare more coaches. He and Clarence Callender became the mentors for the sprints group in English athletics, and they did their very best. They didn't just fetch. I went and worked on their courses for them a couple of times. Yeah, people would come and travel to one location. But then Tony and Clarence would be going out and visiting them on site, right, right at the cutting edge of it, of where it really mattered. And, and just worked and supported the people at the, at the training session to better practice. And that started to work. When I looked at the, the the way the confidence grew in these coaches that would have Clarence turn up or Tony turn up to help this week, this month, and continuity at the end of the phone and, and exchanging videos and just non-stop being mentored, look what happened to British sprinting in the last decade. Big changes. It didn't happen in jumping and it didn't happen in throwing and see where they are at the moment. You just need the right people given the right tools to mentor generation after generation of coaches. So I'm sorry, but that that's, it's a political problem. And it comes down to the career bureaucrats have got no idea. And until they do, we're not going to get coach mentoring. and We won't get improvement.
0: Mm. I mean, it sounds to me a lot like a, an apprenticeship or the old school apprenticeships that people would do, you know, whether it was, In the renaissance period under a great sculptor or painter or even now you know your plumber and your electrician there's a period of time where you're not you know okay you might have a bit of knowledge but you're not just let loose to go and and cause havoc or or be left alone you know in a situation i used to go i used to travel up north to wilf and just sit and just watch him and just watch
1: him and i used to watch him but that was me going to do that and i could have had a car i could drive up and see him but i also when i was i was staff coach for javelin in the midlands and and I just say, Wolf, can you come down? And I, I'm, I, I don't think I'm doing this very well. And I've got a good group of javelin throwers in, at Birchfield during that time. And Wolf would come down. And, and he would then re- remind me of what I was forgetting to do, remind me to try this, to remind me to feedback this way, remind me. And he would just stimulate me up uh, by being there in the session. And then when he'd step in and say, look, can I just show this, this athlete this? And then you watch and you go, oh, I wish I'd have thought of that. And it was happening right there in the session, not in a classroom. Now, I was like, so I, I tried to do that myself. And of course, I'll say it to all coaches, don't wait for your national governing body to do it for you. Go out and choose your mentors. Yeah, and it's hard work. Um, and I said to some of the local strength and conditioning guys, I said, I worked for 10 years without getting paid for any coaching. I just need to go six or seven days a week and just coach. I was getting paid as a teacher, and it was, I then spent the next three or four hours after school, six or seven days a week just coaching. I wasn't looking to be paid for it. And that's another issue to do with the modern generation. Oh, I've got my degree, I now need to be paid. No, you need to serve your apprenticeship. I, I am proof of somebody that broke their apprenticeship and jumped too quickly to, to chase the ego of getting uh, a great employment position. I just wasn't ready for it. I wasn't good enough to do that. Um, I think I'm a lot better now, but not way then I wasn't. Serve your apprenticeship.
0: Mm, No, that's a a fantastic point. And as you say, there's so much to be gained from that. I guess both from, you know, mentoring, you know, levelling up that, being able to coach the coaches as well as the coach themselves, coaching the athletes. There's a two-way relationship there as well, isn't there?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: So in terms of, the coaches themselves. What skills do you think we need to be developing in ourselves when we're coaching young athletes? That kind of reflection, debriefing, all those kind of things you've mentioned. What are some of the skills that you would pick out of the course of your career that people need to develop?
1: I think, and again, being lucky, um, as part of my teacher training, I was introduced to the the to skill acquisition way back, and we had the textbook by Barbara Knapp. How do people learn? And that is something that I've never been able to, I've never been allowed to forget. I know I went to a stage where I, when other things got the upper hand in all this, but very quickly, I always tried to work out how is this person learning, whether it was Keats in 100 metres or whether it was Ness jumping over high jump bars or Robin long jumping or Ken triple jumping, whatever it was, Gilby doing the 800 metres. It didn't matter. How are they learning? Am I setting up an environment that they're going to learn this permanently? Or is it just something through which we're going to pass? And being a PE teacher, I was at least exposed to the fact that I've got to create a learning environment. And to me, the biggest tool you can develop in your toolbox is it'll always start with explicit learning. You'll have to tell them what to do, demonstrate what to do. It always starts there. Give them a good demonstration. Give them a good description of what activity, what movement you want them to do, uh, and let that then let them cop, try and copy that, and then you can refine it a little bit more. But the main thing is also to realize that they can learn implicitly, where you haven't got to say very much. You have to set them a task and let them see if they can solve the puzzle. So I think the biggest thing in our toolbox now that our coaches can learn is not to just to give them a list of instructions to carry out, but to try and let them solve a puzzle if you can. How? And just, it comes down to, that. there's the thing, we need external focus. Uh, That's a tool that can help us. Instead of just saying, I want you to concentrate on this body part, I want you to try and concentrate on an outcome. Like I was talking with the young sprinter the other night and I was saying, Okay, I want you to feel that you are looking over these trees at the bottom down there at at the track. And that was to try and just get head up and chest up. Uh, I want you to see if you can, uh, teaching a discus turn. I want you to try and imagine you've got your foot on the floor and you're squashing the bug. So you have to land in the middle of the circle, heel up and see if you can spin on your toe on that flat foot and squash the bug. So I was using an analogy. Um, I was looking at the external focus of things. I was letting them just solve the puzzle. If it got wrong, i say, well, you have to find find another way. Find another way. Okay, this time I want you to try and do it with your eyes closed. This time I want you to do it holding a broomstick above your head and see what happens. I would just keep on making, changing the task. The task hadn't changed. Let Let me give you an example, right? Let's look at sprint mechanics. we're all different. Please don't think this is the only way of doing it. There's smarter people than me out there. I will start from where the foot hits the floor and work up from there. If your foot hits the floor in the right position with the right amount of force in the right direction and then comes off the ground at the right time in the right direction, most of the rest of the body is going to follow that and, and be right. So I always start with how we get the foot on the floor and how we get the foot off the floor in all of my sprint mechanics development. And I do that through teaching them how to do skipping with skipping ropes, and that's our foot landing on the floor. What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What's it like doing that on one leg and two legs? What's it like when I'm running forwards? What's it like when I'm running backwards? What's it like when I'm running in a circle, clockwise and anti-clockwise? What's it like when I'm doing skipping, doing this? What's it like, as the foot hits the floor and comes up, when I'm doing galloping? So all these, the, the, the myriad of movement patterns All dealing with how the foot hits the floor and comes off the floor and that's that's five years of of learning going on there so I'm trying to use implicit learning I'm changing the task but the central core hasn't changed how the foot hits the floor and the foot comes off the floor so I want to hit the floor so the heel uh, is just off the floor and we're landing on an active flat foot and it's a stiff ankle and I want the when it comes off the floor, I want the heel being aimed to the hamstring, not to the butt, but to the hamstring. So there's two things. And I do hundreds of little activities, forwards and backwards and sideways, and one leg and a two and hopping and galloping and skipping and running forward and running backwards and all that. All working on the same thing. So I'm using variability. It's one of those long words. I'm I'm varying the task, but the task has not changed. I'm after the same thing. And in this 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 myriad of of, of movement patterns that i'm after and this one central or two central cores are going on stiff landing heel to hamstring then they're having to look through this fog of movements and keep concentrating on that i haven't got to say very much i'm just going to say heel to hamstring and, and let them have and then keep interfering with they are now learning implicitly or i can do high knee drills i can do mac and mac b's I can make them do a drill. And remember this, for every drill you get them good at, they then got to take that drill and try and apply it into the sport-specific action and posture in a race. So I always try and teach my sprinters to try and do all these things at relatively high speed. I don't want to have to do it slowly and then try and apply it or do it in a drill. We've got that many kids who are good at drills nowadays. They still can't run properly. So so to me, the biggest thing in your toolbox is to, to find out how can I enhance the learning that they're going to go through. And you know what the key to that's going to be? It's going to be your patience because you'll have to do it next session, the session after, the session after that, the session after that. It's going to take them months and years rather than days and minutes and weeks. You need to be patient. So the key to yourself is your creativity. I've just mentioned two things. Stiff landing for the foot in sprinting and heel to hamstring as it comes up the ground. I've just chosen those. Shoot me down if you don't agree with it. I don't, I don't care. But now what I'm going to do is I'm going to find as many ways of them doing that as possible. And th- that's what I want them to try. and. Uh, I'm not going to change the, the central premise of what I'm after. If I'm skipping, what am I doing? Heel to hamstring, active flat foot landing. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm running, if whatever I'm going to do. But I'm not going to teach them drills. Now, if something goes wrong and they're not capturing and they're running at a decent speed, you know, about 60, 70% of their running speed and they're trying to get the feet right and they're trying to get the heel to hamstring and it's not working, I've got to be able to come back and regress a little bit more and find out where it will work. So I might go to a drill. I'll use a drill if all else fails. And as soon as they've learned a bit of the pattern inside a drill, then I'm going to apply it straight back back into the more uh, realistic um, event-specific, sport-specific activity. This comes to the uh, another one of the big big bricks in this is that whatever you do, it better transfer to what your outcome that you want. The number of things that people do out of habit or spells or potions or gadgets. Because other people have done them. Find out how much of this is going to transfer to what your outcome is going to be. It's like you, you, you can into all running we've got to project the hips. There, there's one. So just, just think of that. In all running activities, uh, we've got to project the hips. Now you've seen that you know those ladders that people put on the floor and they start doing all this Peter Pattering work. Your hips never, never project during that activity. Never, 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 never. So why the hell are you doing it relating it to running mechanics? It's it's impossible. It, It occupies them for 20 minutes. You look sexy. You spent a lot of money on that gear, but it's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. You've got to choose activities that will transfer to the next level of attainment that you're looking for if it doesn't transfer you're not teaching it properly and you've chosen the wrong you've chosen you haven't chosen an appropriate activity let me go right back to the beginning athlete appropriate first not sport appropriate so it all begins to tie itself up now if we start having these little principles that we're going to keep coming back to like today we had a session yesterday uh, with the 12 with year old doing her running mechanics. And uh, it was a, uh, she'd had three tests at school. Uh, she's just started high school. She's still making new friends. Travel is now different. Uh, she got out of home, she'd had three tests. Imagine the changes that she's had to go through. If I blindly then say, well, tonight you've got flying 30s and you've got to start doing it. No. I had to react to that and say, I need to make this so it's fun. It's still gonna work on the progressions we want. We still didn't change the stiff ankle and the heel to hamstring, but we did it through about five or six different new ways of doing it. We were doing galloping. We were doing all sorts of things. It was completely different to the session I'd written down because I took into account the learning, all the things that affect learning and her demeanor, what she'd gone through in the day, as she was warming up, you could see that life was difficult to this time last week. This is somebody, who, and she's 12. Now if, if I can't be that adaptable and flexible with a 12-year-old, I shouldn't even be doing this. And I, and I had to be creative then. Well, I still want her to not forget about uh, ankle stiffness and foot on the floor and heel to hamstring. How can I change it? Oh, we did all sorts of things. We hadn't got a tennis ball out, and then she had to run after the tennis ball and try and do it. Oh, I made up all sorts of things. I made the – I was daft as anything. But she was smiling all the way through it, and I got her to then start having to – you know, slowly she started coming out of it. I'm sorry if that's a a bit of a a wishy-washy look, but it comes. all this gets tied up. What is long-term athlete development? Make it athlete-appropriate. She's 12. She's had a – You've got to look at all those things. If all you look at is chapter 12 of the technical manual, you're not going to do a good job. Do everything that comes from the athlete in front of you. They will determine what you need to do. So what it tells you as a coach is that whatever you learnt on your coaching course, you need to build up a major, huge reservoir of activities that are general, are uh, related and are specific. And you need to build up thousands and thousands of them because at any given time, you might not be able to get much joy out of what you'd like to do today. You've got to do what you must do today. And that is make it athlete appropriate. Did I just make any sense in all of just rambling?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so much sense. I think it's funny, as you were mentioning around, you know, the movement variability and we'll try all these different ways of doing things and explore, feel and, tempo and those kind of things. I was just thinking that takes an incredible amount of patience on the coach's part. And I'm wondering if that's something we've lost is the patience of long-term athletic development, as opposed to that demand for the weekend or the season's best.
1: Well, but, but remember it isn't just the of the 12 year old. She's got ambition. She, she wants to, uh, she made the national championships last year as an 11 year old and she came third in the nation in 200 meters. But one of the things that she really wants to do is make the national championships in swimming. So she does two events. So I have to try and balance out her swimming opportunities uh, and, and development and her running development and her athletic development that's got to feed both ways. Well, it's got to feed her towards adulthood. That's what it's got to do. So I've got to try and do all that. Now, she... She'd look, she must to get there yesterday. Remember, she's going to be as tough on me as anybody. now. And I'm lucky I've got parents who have got this patience about them. They, they're happy to get her on a nice journey towards adulthood. They, don't, they love it when she wins stuff or she makes the next level. Um, so I've got to also look after that part of, of her development, and that is how do we satisfy the competitive urges inside her because her peer pressure is enormous. And all the, the way she, she, she views herself has got her own uh, um, rhythms to it. I can't ignore that. So one of the things I've done since she was 10 years of age is talk about her personal best. Uh, and I would have said it tonight as well. I'll say it every time I'm with it'll take It'll take 10 years of saying it. I can't let it go. We can't control what the other athletes are doing. We can't control what your opposition's doing. Your opposition that you met last year as an 11-year-old could be, could be going through a massive growth spurt at the moment and just turning into giants and, and just be much bigger and stronger than you are next year. And it, then it could be different the year after. Others haven't had to change schools and they've moved straight on. Others have, don't have to travel very far. Who knows? We have no idea. So there's some people we don't even know about could be faster than anybody this year. So let's not worry about what the others are doing. If if you beat them, you beat them. If you don't, you don't. But the one thing you've got to do is better than you've been ever ever before. And one of the things we work out is in every session, she's got to do something better than she's ever done before. I don't care if it's one movement, one repetition, one part of the warm-up, one whatever it's going to be somewhere in there, she's got to try and win something at the smallest little micro level. Now, she wins more than one thing. So that's all she never has. She never has a back. And as long as I choose the environment, I can get her to win a lot of things and I can make her feel good because she's achieved some, she achieves, she was got good running mechanics chasing a tennis ball yesterday. That's a win. So it, it, it becomes up to me as well to try and present the language and the vocabulary and the environment that she understands. Look, there's going to be, I've taken, you know, I've done what, I've put 14 people into Olympic teams and, I, and I've been up the back of the stand at these seven Olympic games with my knees shaking. It's that tense. It's that hard. This is the, this is the ultimate stuff. And I know what that takes. And if I, if this person is going to have a chance at going there, who knows? Or anybody at this age, then we've got to, we've got to colour in all these parts as well, and not just blindly follow the, the fixture list and all the things that it brings. So I've got my work cut out here to try and change the language and the vocabulary and the understanding of this twelve-year-old to see if we can take her forward to 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, and she keeps growing as a person, and she gets more robust to survive the reality of what the future's going to bring. And that's coming right down to how I put the training program together. So, sorry, I don't even know what question you asked. (laughs) (laughs) I've got off on a tangent. Sorry. What
0: do you, when when you, I often speak to coaches who are much more experienced, they'll often say, Oh, that was, we used to do that all the time, that was called this. And it, some new training idea or a new training concept, and they say, Actually, we did that 50 years ago, we just called it something else. So, what do you think? Are there any key things? it could be books, it could be schools of thought, things that we've forgotten that we need to remember.
1: It is difficult that because we, we have fallen into the trap of, of, the, of, the, of the technology. You know, we can't, you can't ignore technology. Um, Talking, uh, I forget, a few years ago with Frank, uh, Frank Dick, and and we were just talking about this general thing about how coaching nowadays has got to embrace technology. You know, you you need to understand it as well. We can't just ignore it. I think, what did he say? That um, it took 45 years to get a worldwide radio audience. You know, from when you first started putting radios in your house in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the radio ran it, and all around the world to get a worldwide audience, you know, half the world or whatever, uh, took 45 years. It took 20, 35 years for TV to get a worldwide audience. It took Facebook five days. So... It's, it moves so fast that I think we've got to just look over our shoulder and just check that we are. If this thing's going to be helpful to us, then we should look at it. Uh, but unfortunately, we always we always make the mistake. Look at look at GPS now at the moment. I mean, we got that many people with that many numbers, and we're saying, okay, what are you going to do with the numbers? Once you've learned something, how is it going to affect you? Teach that somebody, somebody else, something, something else, and. It's become more important to gather the numbers than it has been to apply those numbers into worthwhile learning environments. And that's so That so there's a problem. So, so going back, um, no, uh, there's some things that I'm glad we moved on from. I think we moved on from volume, uh, seem to be the only answer. Although some sports have, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, we've got 12 year olds that, that uh, my swimmer swims against who are training seven days a week, seven swimming sessions a week, and are going over, you know, three and a half thousand metres a session at 12. My athlete does no more than 750 metres twice a week. And she's the fifth fastest freestyler in the country. And I still think that if you apply your knowledge to the needs of the individual, rather than to what we used to do, and this is the way we do it in this sport. It just needs us to be creative and to question our assumptions on that. So uh, there are some things we haven't thrown the shackles off yet, and and that that is where endurance comes in. Uh, But there are some areas now which have improved a little bit, such as people are beginning to ask this question, what do we need to endure? Now let's go and start enduring it. Well, in sprinting, you need to endure technique. You need to endure power. In football and, uh, and contact sports, you need, to, you need to endure contact. You need to endure getting on the floor and off the floor. You need, to, you need to endure landing and taking off in basketball. So you begin to start working out what you want to endure. Uh, then I think it helps you make your choices on how you then start to develop this repeatability thread that you've got to have in in your sport or your activities, as opposed to starting in max VO2 and thinking that's the only way to do things. So, I I really haven't answered the question, but but there are things that are good and are bad and are changing and are better uh, and are worse uh, than they have been. Um, The things that are good, I I, I wish I could say physical education had continued to be as good as it was, but that's... This, it's just completely failed the minute somebody thought PE was a competitive games based curriculum they lost the, the whole plot was lost the whole plot was lost physical education is is to develop the ability to move well and then when you're moving well in every plane every direction against every, every every speed every amplitude uh, in all sorts of complexities then you might be able to use those skills to go on to being well-being, or going on to sport. Not competitive games is the only answer. Wh- whoever thought that one? And the, who, whoever thought PE has got to be an academic subject? I, I said not long ago, and I lose to say it too many times, I guess, I go into some schools and I get these year 10 kids can actually recite the Krebs cycle back to me and physiological terminology. And they walk upstairs and they're gasping for breath. So when did when did we, when did the physical get taken out of physical education? That that's something which hasn't improved. So I'm I'm, I'm probably going to be hard to 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 find things that w- we used to do uh, back then. I mean, we used to. It used to be it. it today, coaching is information centric, and it used to be when I became a teacher and then used my teaching skills into coaching. It used to be learning-centric, and, and that's, maybe we're beginning to see it come back now. There's a lot more things being written about explicit and implicit learning, I think. Uh, certainly, uh, in the, the, if you look at the, the, uh, the women's hockey in the UK, about how they went, about the way Eddie Jones is working with the players with the England setup of giving more responsibility to them. Um, these are traits that we used to have a long, long time ago, as being the, 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 the essence of how a team is put together, that it's their decision-making that has to, we have to give them the tools to do the job because we're on the sideline. Then we went through a phase of it going all warm and fuzzy and we had to teach them everything and we took their responsibility away. And now we're beginning, there are a few, it's a bit like the the tactical periodization. <laughs> In other words... Uh, sensible training, that's what tactical periodization is, but it's a nice new word, I get that, but it's just applying uh, the learned things into the game setting. Um, it, it, that's what it is. So, there's old things and there's new things, there's a lot of things that were, we're, uh, we're old and are now new again. Um, I'm not going to be very good at answering, can't think of anything distinctly that I've seen that we used to do a long time ago that we're not doing now, because it, the world that I work in, all the people I've got to know are doing this anyway. I mean, I, the stuff I follow from what you write down and what you deliver to people is on these same lines. So we haven't, it hasn't all been lost. And there's a, there's, there's some wonderful practitioners out there nowadays. They're going to take it on to where me and my hook, um, you, you'll take it on way past us, but you've got just as many charlatans around you. I think you've got more charlatans and, and and gurus around you than we used to have, you know, way back when I was learning to do things. The first thing you need, you guys, is a good bullshit monitor. Because, and stop going on the internet. (laughs) Because there's that much rubbish out there. Go and find yourselves a mentor that's been around for a long time, made all of their mistakes and hopefully learning from their mistakes. I just make less mistakes nowadays than I used to. I still make bloody mistakes. So I think it comes back to that thing about finding the people that you trust to listen to, to bounce your ideas
0: off. Mm. So for those people who maybe want to learn a bit more about you, I know you've got a few things that you've written down. So where can people find out more about Kevin Giles and movement dynamics and and your schools of thought? Well, it sounds
1: posh, doesn't it? Movement dynamics. It's all right. It's, it's, it's only me. Um, Look, look, it. Um, just to give you the background, when I was at the Queensland Academy of Sport and all these 15-, 16-year-olds would come in and they were eight years away from making the Australian Olympic team or the national teams, and we were given these eight years to get them there, we used to have to say to all the decision-makers, I'm sorry, we can't do it. They've got that many limitations. So what we started to do then was say, how can we find out where they are in their journey? And so way back then, well, through the 90s and through the QAS time, we just came back to some basic movement efficiency work. How can we measure if they can squat, lunge, pull, push, brace, rotate, hinge, and landing? Remember the only movements you need. And we started, so we we'll just put together this physical competence assessment, not to predict how good they were going to be, just to say, well, where are they now? Can this person squat or lunge or push or pull or brace? How well can they do it? Where are they on the journey? Do we have to spend more time on this movement and less time on that movement? And so we started to do a competence assessment and it seemed to to work. Uh, So I I wrote a book, The Physical Competence Assessment Manual. It was there just to help uh, coaches look at, use these wonderful coaching eyes that they've got when they look at their tactical and their technical development and just use those same coaching eyes to look at, how is this person squatting or lunging or pushing or pulling or bracing or rotating or hinging or landing? Uh, if I can make those foundation movements brilliant with repeatable excellence, maybe I can then start moving forward to the more related activities to the sport and then find to the specific ones. So it's to, it's to, it was to build the building blocks. So I just put together this thing called movement dynamics. Oh, it's just a title. And I wrote that book and I published it myself and got somebody, I didn't, it wasn't to a publisher or anything. I've written it myself and that's on the website. I, I, I run courses that, uh, or I used to run courses that, like that one we did across in, um, in Jersey. Remember that? Where, and I've written a book that is like the, the background book to that kind of course of, of the journey of athletic development of all the things we've spoken about. Uh, and then, um, I put together a, a 2,000 video clips progressive of, of, of if you've never taught movement inside your hockey lesson or your swimming lesson or your, your bowls, whatever it's going to be. Here is a way to you can look at squat, lunge, pull, push, brace, rotate, hinge and landing. And I've got all these progressive videos. So it was to try and put some, some money where my mouth was and to say, well, here's some things that might help you. And I've put together the, the company or the, the title called Movement Dynamics, only because it sounds, sounds pop. And I've just put those things together. And I've run my blogs as well on, on, on World Wide Web movementdynamics.com. So you can go and see the books on there. You can go and look at the Movement Library video clips. See, I wanted these video clips, not in your head. I wanted them, as if there's the great thing that's happened. You have them on a smartphone or a tablet, it's in your pocket. You've got no excuse then. If you're teaching kids how to push horizontally or vertically, and not, there you are, you've got, you've got 500 video clips right on your phone. You haven't even got to be expert at them. Just click on it and have a look at it and say, kids, I want you to try this. And you show them a new movement. And it's on your phone. So I think, and that's where we are moving with Scottish athletics until Darren and Richie moved on, of trying to get the technical journey and the, and the athletic journey woven together on a phone just to help the coaches in the field rather than just turn up at a coaching course I run. And then next Tuesday they go, what did he say in that course? I've forgotten. We try to take it from that and put it where they can use it. So I don't want to sort of advertise, it's not an advertising thing. That's what I've tried to put together. Uh, And and that's, that's out there if you're interested in.
0: Well, Kelvin, it's always a pleasure to speak to you and to hear from someone who's been there, done it and got the t-shirt. So thanks so much for your time today. Now I'm sorry, I, I'm so, I, I apologize to everybody,
1: I ramble and I've <laughs> rambled again. Look, it's, it's great to see you after that last time we met was in, in Jersey and that was wonderful. I had a great experience, it was great meeting you then, and it's great to see you still
0: going on with everything. Well, it's fantastic to see you as well. And to, uh, it's, I always learn something every time I hear you talk, so it's good to, good to get that out there for more people to, to hear.
1: Thanks, mate. I'm sorry, no matter, i no